You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, uh, you showed up today with... Uh, what I can only describe as a as a go cup full of donuts. That's right. And uh, your normal gas station coffee from the the area filling station here. Uh, as the health nut of the co-main event podcast, I feel like you kind of let everybody down this week with rolling in with your uh, cup full of Krispy Kremes. You know, you weren't saying that five minutes ago when you were stuffing your face with some Krispy Kreme. I, I ate one donut. I stuffed my face with one. Well, that's so far. You've had one donut so far. Well, I don't want to limit or tip my hand for later. <laughs> Listen, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It, it was an impulse buy, but you're over there. You already got the coffee in your hand. You're about to check out at, at the noon's filling station. You see that little cup of donuts and you figure, what the hell, man? YOLO, you know what I'm saying? I guess so. I guess that's exactly what you thought. And that's how you end up with some, some go cup of donuts. Well, I just don't want you to spoil your appetite, though, because we got some good stuff in the mail this week from longtime listener uh, Grant Jelinus Brown from Winnipeg. He uh, sent us some Canadian candies, uh, one of which, by the way, is a milk chocolate egg called uh, Kinder Surprise. Kinder, that means children in German. Look at you. Uh, that has a toy inside it. A milk chocolate egg with a toy hidden inside it. Well, I don't know if that's exactly sanitary, but I, you know, that is a surprise. I, so it's true to name. I do see, however, a bar of coffee crisps sitting over there. So somebody's been paying attention. The Canadians, they know I like the coffee crisp, man. And good for some reason, we can't get it over here. That's good stuff. It is good stuff. Uh, he also sent us a kazoo, which I'm going to go ahead and let you take home to serenade your wife. Okay. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the cream on top of all of it, the, the, the true gem of this particular mailing to Co-main event podcast logo coffee mugs, which are just about the coolest goddamn things I've ever seen. You know, we should probably be ashamed of ourselves that our listeners are way ahead of quality merchandising for this podcast than we are. Yes. Yeah. In fact, when I opened the box containing my co-main event podcast logo coffee mug, I thought, we ought to sell these. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought. Make us an offer. We got two of them sitting right here. <laughs> oh, no one's getting their hands on mine. Uh, we should also, this reminds me, thank a uh, friend of the podcast, Julie Kedzi, for uh, her gifts to the podcast, uh, including when I think you're really going to enjoy this, and I think that we might even get some use out of this for perhaps our special uh, episode number 100, which we have some super secret awesome stuff lined Top up for. Top secret plans for that. Yeah, um, but she gave us an awesome uh, luchador wrestler bottle opener that does sound awesome which is right up our alley yes we can use that uh also for an upcoming episode of the drinking game which i'm sure we'll never do again right well you don't never say never man who knows so you, you uh, put enough distance between you and a bad idea and it starts to seem like a good idea again that's true thanks to uh grant north of the border and the peg and uh julie kedzie down there in albuquerque for the wonderful gifts Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Alexander Gustafson didn't fuck up this weekend. And friends, that means that the light heavyweight division is about to get really, really fun. And in round number two, for the first time since September 23rd, 2006, the UFC will stage a welterweight title fight without George St. Pierre this weekend. And in round number three, tough six winner Mac Danzig retired last week, but this weekend, tough one last man standing Diego, Diego Sanchez will have his 31st professional fight against the undefeated Miles Jury. And perhaps much like this tease for round number three itself, it's not clear where anybody is going with that. Has it really only been 31? All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. 
You know, whenever I say that, I feel like we need that the sound of the uh, prison door slamming that they play on the chronic <laughs> when they say like we always do about this time. Yeah. Do you think the kids that listen to this podcast even know what I'm talking about when I say that? They know, but, right? Yeah. It's it's so old it's back in again. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Simon Whiteham or Whitham from Newcastle, England. That doesn't sound like a real place. He writes, Gunnar Nelson looked awesome on Saturday. How far do you guys see him going in the UFC's welterweight division? Well, Ben, Gunnar Nelson did look pretty awesome yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, he did. He came out and pretty much... Blew the doors off Omari Akhmedov. Uh, first round submission by guillotine choke. Uh, this was Akhmedov was making his UFC debut. Is that right? No, I think he fought in one one in the UFC. Uh, oh, yeah, he yeah. beat uh, Thiago Pertuo. So essentially, this was his UFC debut. Uh, <laughs> he fought and lost to uh, Gunnar Nelson. But yeah, Gunnar Nelson looked good, man. And uh, he's a dude that uh, continues to impress every time out there. Uh, I, f- I feel he missed some time with an injury. Is that right? He's been he did. out for uh, a, little a little bit over a year. year. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I admit that I thought that he might be a little bit overrated. I think we still haven't really seen him against anybody who could really push him. Uh, I was surprised, surprised how easy he made it look, uh, especially because, you know, he comes out there with his Machida-esque karate stance uh, and just really carefully picks his spots and really makes it count. Uh, and then goes basically straight into the mount and just starts punishing a dude until he opens him up for a submission. I mean, I don't really, it's kind of a flawless performance and exactly like what, like the best case scenario for a guy who's like karate guy with great jujitsu. Like that's, that's a, a combination we don't really see a lot. Usually it's like, oh, he's a wrestler with good boxing or he's like a kickboxer with good takedown defense or something. You know, this one though, a guy who can be that dangerous on the ground and has that kind of elusive, uh, difficult to, to pin down style on the feet. I'm a little bit excited now. I'm excited to see what he could do. Yeah, I think he's, he's only pretty, 25. Yeah, he's an exciting prospect. I think he is 25 years old, as you mentioned. And according to his Wikipedia page, the three-time winner of the Icelandic Juvenile Kumite Championship. Come on. Well, that's what it says, man. Anybody can edit a Wikipedia page. Yes, they can. That's what it says about Gunnar Nelson. Well, okay. First of all, I think that we need to do a special CME investigation to find out if the Icelandic Juvenile Kumite Championship is, in fact, a real thing. And then if it is, we need to go there and and do a live broadcast. Yeah, cover it in depth. Uh, Well, you know, and uh, Gunnar Nelson's first two UFC wins were against Demarcus Johnson and and George Santiago. So... uh, you know, those guys, obviously, uh, especially San Diego, Santiago is a guy who had a ton of success in, in other uh, organizations before coming back to the UFC and kind of washing out. But um, I think you could make the argument that those are, are two uh, fairly impressive wins for a guy's first two appearances. I don't in the know. UFC. I mean, I guess maybe I wasn't terribly impressed with this. One thing, Demarcus Johnson, didn't he take that one on really short notice and then yeah, this way and everything? Yeah, he went in and, at 183. Yeah, then Gunnar Nelson beats him up and the UFC cuts him. Uh, so... I don't know. You know, now, though, I feel like we need to see this guy get bumped up against the higher class competition. Are you going to say we need to see him outside of the United Kingdom? Well, that would be nice. all three of his UFC fights have been in uh, the UK. That, I think, is going to be one of those things where it seems like the UFC has pegged him as like, oh, well, here's a guy who's a regional draw in these areas. So if the card doesn't have a ton going on for it, you can stick him on there against, you know, somebody else that, that nobody around there cares about or has heard of and it'll sell. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't get to be a situation where he's just like unofficially stuck in fight pass Euro mode and we'll never get to see him out of there because then that kind of limits the, the quality of the competition. The UFC is going to be willing to put him up against, I think. And we'll have to make hashtag free Gunner Nelson t-shirts. Yeah, we'll have to, Ooh. we will have no choice. The next uh, piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Evan Whitmore. He writes, first of all, do you think criticism of the Michael Johnson versus Melvin Gallard fight has been fair? Second of all, do you think that it's fair to criticize Fight Pass because this fight was kind of dull? How do we determine, generally speaking, whether the UFC made a bad fight or whether the guys in the fight just didn't perform? Um, I'm going to come out and say, first of all, I don't think that the criticism of the Michael Johnson-Melvin Gallard fight has been fair. Really? Because it was not a barn burner, but it was also not... 
a fight so terrible that I feel like you needed to write home and tell your mom about it. Uh, your mom doesn't want to hear that anyway. She has she has enough problems. Nah, man, my mom's only interested in the highlights, dude. I can just imagine somebody gets kicked in the face. Show my mom that. Imagine your mom taking the cigar out of her mouth and mumbling, "Big deal, Chad. Tell me something worth hearing about." Sluicing a stream of tobacco juice <laughs> down into the dirt. Okay, well, I I'll agree that like maybe the criticism of the fight is slightly unfair. I feel like there's a valid criticism of Melvin Guillard's game plan in there though, uh, because. I don't know what the hell his he was thinking there, that he's just going to, I'm going to avoid this guy for so long that he gets frustrated and he dives in there and I'm able to hit him with one big shot because that worked like once uh, and then not again. And you get into the third round of that fight and you got to think, man, now it's time to go now. It's time, it's time to, to turn it up and, and do something. It's one like kind of reminded me of that uh, Clay Guida, Gray Maynard fight where it was like, okay, part A of the plan is to frustrate him by not fighting. And then there was no part B. Uh, and I felt like it was kind of the same situation with, with Melvin Guiard there. And I think maybe one of the things, and this leads us into the second part of the question, is the, one of the reasons why it was disappointing was because you look at this one on paper and it looks like a good fight where there's going to be a lot of action uh, and you know somebody's probably getting put away. And then I think because of that expectation, and I don't think you can criticize the UFC for or fight pass in general for for this fight because I do think that's a that's a pretty good matchup. I agree. Uh, and and we had reason to expect that it was going to be a good fight, and it just wasn't. And I think it just wasn't because mainly because of one of the two dudes in there. Uh, and yeah, that's just going to happen sometimes. But I think one of the reasons people are coming down so hard on it is because they expected so much more. Yeah, and again, I didn't think it was a terrible fight. I didn't think it was a great fight, but also, you know, I, I watched it, and it, it entertained me. I thought it was a good win for Michael Johnson, the guy who's won three in a row now and seems to uh, be the kind of guy that you'd like to see, like Gunnar Nelson, get a bit of a boost in terms of competition for his next fight, especially since, uh, you know, this fight was supposed to be Melvin Gallard against Ross Pearson. Uh, so uh, Doing it again, brother. It was kind of an injury makeup to put Michael Johnson in there in the first place, then he comes out and wins the fight. I I didn't have a, a problem with with how it played out, and and I kind of uh, feel a little bit uh, weird about the maybe implied assumption that the UFC is supposed to try to make exciting fights, which is not necessarily what I want the UFC to do. I want the UFC to make the best fights between the best guys, but that's just me. Yeah, but I feel like en route to getting there. Uh, it it is a reasonable expectation that you're going to put together, you know, I think put together relevant fights, fights that make sense. Um, and also if you're putting together fights against the best dudes to try and find out who's the best dude among the two of them, then those should be good fights, you know, and, and especially if it's in occupying the co-main event territory of something that is essentially a $10 pay-per-view. Uh, on Fight Pass, then, yeah, you know, we have reason to, to expect a good fight. But I, I, again, don't think you can criticize the UFC at all for that one because matchmaking-wise, especially after having to make up for an injury, you know, that's, on paper, that's a pretty good fight there. So, uh, I, it is, though, one of those things then where Dana White comes out right afterwards and just blasts Melvin Guillard uh, in his game plan. Um, so, you know, and that's the kind of thing where I feel like if you're the promoter, you want to lay off on that kind of stuff. You don't want to be trying to micromanage dudes' game plans too much, especially after the fact. The last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Wayne F. He writes, an interesting and somewhat amusing oversight from last week due to all of the vastly more important slash interesting slash relevant news. Bellator debuted the slightly new, slightly curved Everlast gloves. Presumably, these gloves were designed in part to cut down on or eliminate accidental eye pokes while allowing the fights the fighters the needed mobility in the hands to grapple well the first preliminary fight of the night ended in a no contest due to accidental eye poke back to the drawing board is there really anything that can be done to prevent the eye pokes without seriously impending the fight impeding the fighter's ability to grapple please discuss and thank you oh okay so very polite yeah from wayne f we got a couple of uh, questions on the on the same uh, Bellator Everlast gloves issue this week, and silly me, I watched several of the fights on that Bellator card and didn't even know that they were using a different style of glove. Although uh, I did, while I was watching it, I, I remember thinking, "Oh, they're using Everlast gloves," but I didn't think that they were different than the normal ones. So, you know, I'm not too optimistic about the ability to just have a 
slightly redesigned glove and boom, that issue is completely taken away. Right. No, neither am I. I think that that's not the right way to go about it. No. And I mean, I feel, I feel like, you know, that's probably going to always be something that we deal with on some level, but I, I do think that the solution is going to have to be more, uh, penalizing fighters who poke the other dude in the eye, who have their fingers outstretched in the region of the other dude's eyes to begin with. Right. Um, but I also think that, we need to come to some kind of like consistent system uh, in MMA of what do we do when a dude backs up and holds his eye and makes the the chill dog, the chill dog right. motion. Which happened in the Melvin Gillard, right. uh, Michael Johnson fight. What do we do? Because, you know, the ref can't always see that. You know, I, ideally he should be in a good position to be able to see that stuff. But it's stuff is happening fast in there. He can't always tell if a dude was poked in the eye, you know, or, or not. So it's this thing where fighters aren't supposed to be able to call timeout, but they effectively can like 90% of the time. And then there's that 10% of the time where the ref is just like, no, fuck you. This fight's still going on. Uh, and it gets kind of weird in there. Like, I think that there has to be some kind of consistent protocol for that. And I don't know if it's necessarily every time that happens, we stop, we look at the replay. If we determine that the guy was not poked in the eye, he gets a point deduction for faking it or something for embellishment, uh, as you might say. Uh, or if, you know, then we determine he was poked in the eye, we penalize the other guy. But it seems like the fact that you can probably pretty much extend your fingers in the, in, in a guy's face, if he runs his eyeball into them, hey, you know, you get a little finger wagon from the ref, but that's it. No real consequences. I mean, of course, that's why people keep doing it. If I'm in a fight and my opponent tries to do the chill dog, I'm going to throw my hands up and walk away like I just won. Because if there's a 10% chance that the ref's not going to give him the stoppage and there's a 50% chance that the ref is just going to declare me the winner, I feel like that mathematics say I'm going to win, right? A bigger chance for me to win right there. You know, this combined with your theories about, you know, how you want to start a fight by kicking a dude in the nuts immediately. Right. Uh I, it's amazing to me that no one has hired you as a kind of like strategy consultant that in there. you know of. That's true. <laughs> For all you know, there's tons of professional fighters out there studying Dundasso, trying to become <laughs> black belts in Dundasso. Just a bunch of ways to cheat and game the system. You're right about the eye poke thing. And I feel like the eye poke rule is one of the worst in the sport, uh, in the way that it's officiated, because... Uh, you know, sometimes a guy gets poked in the eye and it doesn't even seem like the ref knows what the rule is. You know, when he has to call a stoppage, does the guy get five minutes? Does he have to start right back up? Uh, and, and like I've said a ton of times before, if you're not going to get penalized for poking a guy in the eye the first time, you might as well just go ahead and do it. Right. And that, like you said, I think is why you see guys constantly pushing off and and. Uh, waving their open hands in, in, uh, their opponents' faces as these, as these fights play out. Like, you know, some of that could just be instinct and human nature, but I, I think some of it is also them feeling like, hey, if this guy walks into my finger, like, probably nothing's gonna happen to me, so yeah. I might as well do it. I think you're right that what we need to have is a far more stringent enforcement of the rules in, in, uh, in that regard, especially like when you see guys, uh, kind of waving an, an open hand out there a lot during a fight i think you should you know uh st you know firmly <laughs> firmly warn a guy for that not just uh not just this the sort of like ineffectual warning that we often see from from uh mma refs where they're always kind of like oh we can stop doing that yeah you better cut that out and that's totally a strategy a lot of guys are using that as a strategy that hey if you know when the guy's coming in for a takedown or the guy's closing the distance in a way i don't like extend my hands, kind of put them out there, uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens to the guy's eyes. It's that thing, like, you know, you and your your sister around in the living room and like, hey, I'm not I'm not going to punch you. I'm just going to swing my fists about in the air, and if you get in the way, then that's on you. We learn more and more about your upbringing every day, I feel like. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for uh, Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the podcast website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top of the right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Uncle Ben. Alexander Gustafson pretty much took care of biznass against Jimmy Manawa in the main event of either UFC Fight Night 37 or UFC Fight Night 38, depending on which website you get your news from, or if you want to go ahead and rebrand the whole thing, UFC London. Uh, what was your take on the fight? I think this, this to me seemed like the kind of matchmaking where it was just, it was just kind of a, well, don't screw this up fight for Alexander Gustafson. Uh, obviously he wins and retains his number one contender status, gets to fight the winner of John Jones's upcoming fight with Glover Tashira. Uh, was this any more or less lopsided than you thought it was going to be or did this play out like you like you expected about as lopsided as i thought it would be i mean in fairness jimmy man was not a pushover i mean you see his previous fights and they all, almost all ended weird uh of his three fights in the ufc but you can tell that there's a guy with some talent uh and a, a guy who can be dangerous if you if you let him get going i mean that guy has a lot of power and is comes in there just pretty much immediately looking to take your head off so if you let him get going in the in the early part of a fight yeah, you could have some problems, but that said, you look at that matchup on paper, and there's no reason Alexander Gustafson shouldn't beat that guy. Just what he did, you know, he took him down uh, pretty easily in the first round, and kind of, you know, looked for a submission while also grinding away from the top, uh, and then went out there in the second when he realized he had him hurt when one of those knees jumped right on him and finished everything you could really ask for Gustafson to do. Like he shows enough of his overall game, shows that, that killer instinct as soon as he sees uh, that that Manuel was hurt. Did a weird little handstand there that, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a, it's a Swedish thing that I don't know about. Maybe cultural differences. Um, but then just snatched the mic right out of Dan Hardy's hand. Mid-sentence, by the way. That's right. <laughs> no respect for Dan Hardy's question. Uh, and uh, then, you know, in his most polite Swedish way possible, called out John Jones. I mean, if you draw up the blueprint for what you want Alexander Gustafson to do there, it looks almost exactly like that. Yeah, I like that that was about as fiery as you're going to see Alexander Gustafson be yeah. because he did snatch the mic away from Dan Hardy uh, during Dan Hardy's first performance as a UFC post-fight interviewer, by the way, uh, which maybe Dan Hardy take, take some notes from that, maybe take a little bit of a of a firmer grasp on the microphone. <laughs> uh, but he snatches the mic away from Dan Hardy, but then kind of sounds pretty polite during while calling out John Jones. Yeah. Doesn't say please and thank you, but pretty Alexander Gustafson. They were implied. Implied, yeah. Uh so uh, here's my takeaway from this. Alexander Gustafson uh now has been confirmed as the guy who's going to fight the winner of uh John Jones versus Glover Tashira at UFC 172. That's a fight that's somewhat interesting, although I think most of us expect John Jones to win. But when I look at this and then the aftermath from this event where uh uh, Daniel Cormier and John Jones and, and, uh, some of the fans doing some bickering on Twitter. Uh, uh, my takeaway is, oh, wow, the light heavyweight division unexpectedly seems super fun to me right now. Whereas, you know, a year or two ago, uh, it seemed like John Jones had sort of cleaned house on the, uh, on the maybe first wave of contenders for his title. You know, he, he, uh, uh, put together that crazy run in 2011 where, uh, he, he beats, uh, four guys in a year and he beats, uh, I think it was five consecutive UFC light heavyweight champions in a row. And, uh, you know, towards, 2012 2013 especially after the cancellation of ufc 151 where he's supposed to fight dan henderson uh the light heavyweight division seemed pretty uh shallow at the time they they resorted to having him fight vitor belford and and chael sonnen a couple of guys who uh primarily are middleweights hey but they stepped up and said yes that's true they did step up say yes and then both just took ass whippings uh uh and, and I think at that time we felt like maybe light heavyweight was down a little bit. Now I feel like you look at it, you've got Alexander Gustafson coming up, who could be an interesting fight for John Jones, especially remembering what they did at UFC 165 and how close their fight was. You've got Daniel Cormier around the corner waiting for John Jones, who a guy who I think some people think might be might have the best chance of unseating him as champion. And just for good measure, you got Phil Davis fighting Anthony Johnson at, at also at UFC 172, uh, just to produce a guy that maybe uh, Daniel Cormier could fight if he needs someone to fight in the interim. I, I I feel pretty positive right now about the 205-pound division, and perhaps it's sort of regaining its status as the as the marquee weight class. You know, and I guess this leads into, you're talking about the fans bickering on Twitter and people giving John Jones shit about suggesting that, hey, 
you know, Gustafson and Cormier should fight, and then he'll totally innocuously, by the way, just like to John Jones probably seemed like a pretty good idea. He's just trying to be helpful. Right? <laughs> well, you know, and it's not an unreasonable suggestion at all. I mean, they, they, like, it, in in fairness. Beating a guy like Jimmy Manoa, uh, if you're Alexander Gustafson, doesn't necessarily prove anything about Alex- Alexander Gustafson that we didn't already know. Like, it, it doesn't seem like the kind of win that should vault you right back into a title shot, uh, necessarily. The same thing with Daniel Cormier, beat Patrick Cummins, you know, like the guy, the, the, as you would say, fucking coffee barista, uh, who got signed after Rashad Evans got hurt. And, you know, to say like, okay, that proves that he deserves a title shot. Just means that, like, hey, he didn't fuck it up, and we already assumed he was really good based on what he did at heavyweight, so he already had the title shot just by making weight, essentially. Uh, which, okay, fine. I mean, I guess you can make those arguments. But as Dana White said, apparently on Twitter, that, uh, you know, the way he sees it going down is, uh, you know, we have Jones and Glover Teixeira, which, by the way, it's interesting that the guy who's supposed to fight for the light heavyweight title next is like the guy who seems like the last person you're going to mention when you're talking about how interesting the division is getting, uh, which... Well, I feel like that each fight gets more and more interesting, kind of, which is a weird place to be. Yeah, the, the MMA gods hear that. They no, hear they yeah, hear that right, atop Mount right. Zions, and they're ready to fuck with us. So, uh, But... You know, you'll see, uh, you know, the, the winner of that one against Gustafson, uh, according to Dana White, you know, so, and then you'd think maybe Cormier could fight somebody in, in the interim and, and the winner of that would be next line lined up for John Jones. I mean, I, like you said, I mean, I think there's just a ton of good options right there. Um, I do think though the problem is like if you're Glover Teixeira and you're sitting there, you know, Gustafson gets on the mic, John Jones, I want my title shot. And you're like, Hey, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait just a goddamn minute here. For all you know, I might be the champion. Why, why don't you just say, hey, you want the winner of the fight? Why, why you gotta, why you gotta play me like that, Gus? Yeah, write him a strongly worded letter. Yeah. How disappointed you are. <laughs> well, okay, but you know, I, I do think that if we talk about this fight as far as this was the one we were saying beforehand was gonna make people like you break down and get fight pass. Uh, because, you know, before when it was just, you know, there's a fight in Macau and there's, you know, it's a weird time and maybe, you know, there's two guys that you could be borderline main card material on a pay-per-view fighting in the main event. Uh, that's not going to be enough to break somebody down if they're already not on board with it. This one seemed like the real fight that people might actually want to see. Had a couple good fights on this one. Uh, how are you feeling yet? Has your fight pass resolved weekend at all? Well, like I said last week, as a consumer, the way it stands right now, it's not a service that I'm particularly interested in, in buying. Uh, though I understand that at some point as, as a writer, I'm probably going to have to break down and get the damn thing. Uh, as it stands now, no, I, I haven't gotten the fight pass yet. And I thought that you brought up an interesting point in, uh, this week's trading shots. Uh, article that's what it's called right with danny dad's yeah. trading shot are you gonna say the interesting point was when i said that you had an interesting point in your column no but that, that like a roundabout way of saying that you had an interesting point that was the highlight of the <laughs> of the story was when you linked to me and talked about all the good points that i made but i thought your most original thought was uh the part where you talk about how uh without a contract like what fight what is probably going to happen with a lot of fight pass users is they'll watch this Alexander Gustafson Jimmy Manoa fight with which was a pretty good card and then maybe and this is and we don't know that this is going to ha- happen but it's a possibility like are people just going to like then immediately cancel their fight pass subscriptions and wait for another quality event to come up before they reorder it kind of turns these events into $10 pay-per-views like you said uh and and it calls into the question uh maybe maybe the fight pass should have gone with a like a contract like WWE did like if you have to if you get it you have to get it for 6 months right but then i think that if you in order to get people to do that you would have to offer them more uh and i mean i again i think that the the problem that they're going to have there is even if you tell us like here's the lineup for the next six months of events that are going to be on fight pass which the ufc has a really hard time thinking that far ahead and planning you know booking all those fights that far ahead uh even if you do that man if you are hardcore enough to be thinking about buying fight pass you're hardcore enough to know how this sport works and that these cards are subject to motherfucking change uh and sometimes a lot of change and sometimes you know it ends up worse sometimes it ends up better but uh it would be completely reasonable for somebody to be like, all right, well, I signed up for this month. I paid my $10. I watched uh, Lusty Gusty do his thing on Jimmy Manoa. I'm going to watch some old Fedor videos, maybe watch Affliction Day of Reckoning. 
uh, you know, look up some some Robbie Lawler highlights and stuff like that for the rest of the month, as long as I've paid for it, and then I'll cancel, and then I'll wait and see when is the next card that's going to be on Fight Pass where I'm going to feel like, okay, I got to see that one, and hey, maybe it happens three times a year, and I'm basically I buy three ten dollar pay per views. I mean, I don't think, that, especially as people are waiting to see how this thing is going to take shape and what it's actually going to look like, I can see a lot of people making that decision, depending, I guess, on how easy it is to cancel and then get back on board. Uh, but I mean, that's why I think that you had a good point that if this is the the thing for the hardcore fans where we're saying like, hey, we know that you people are way more into this than anybody else. Uh, there should be, you know, if you're signing up basically for this club, this, you know, hardcore club, there should be some break in it for you. And if you could do that, if you could sign up for six months and then get discounted pay-per-views during that time, I think, like you said, they could charge a lot more for it, uh, and you'd make more money in the process. You'd also like cut down on this, like, the kind of growing like backlash where people are just feeling like you're just thinking of new ways to get our money. Like it just never ends. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, and we are going to play some Master Tweet Theater. So we're going to go ahead, and I'm going to give up my chair to him, and we're going to get started with that right now. And now it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am quite excited. What are you excited about? Daylight scabies time. I think that there's been a misunderstanding. What? You know what? Let's not get into it. Uh, for those of you who don't know how this works, uh, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess who the tweeters in question might be based on our limited knowledge of which people are even on Twitter. So, Sir Nigel, uh, I guess we start by asking if there's a theme this week. Yes, there is. The theme is free time. Okay. Well, I feel like that could have been the theme for pretty much any edition of Master Tweet Theater, but uh, all right. That's the secret. It's generality. <laughs> it's a good theme. Whenever mm. you're ready. Um, tweet the first. Watching Ender's Game. This movie is tripping me out. First of all, can I say how much I like it when you when you try and do voices? That's called acting, sir. <laughs> acting. Not really. But, uh, okay. Who's going to be tripped out by Ender's Game, Chad? Uh, boy, th th that doesn't give us a lot to work with. Per se, I'm gonna say um, I'm gonna go Mike Bisping here. I don't know why. I mean, except that I've seen him in the past tweet about stuff he watches. <laughs> yeah, well, again, that could pretty much describe anybody on Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get way off the grid here, and I'm gonna say Johnny Hendricks. Whoa! Well, I don't know. I'm not buying that. Johnny Hendricks seems like he'd be really tripped out by Ender's Game. Yeah, but if he wrote that tweet, it would be it's it's tripping me out, man. You know what I'm saying? So he would tweet exactly as he talks. Yes. Okay. Hmm. Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses. Both the target audience for feature films and both wrong. Yeah. It is, in fact, Chris Lieben. Oh, that's... Yeah, God that makes damn sense. it. I can see him being trip, tripped out by and, a movie. And he's got some free time now. <laughs> he, can, he can get tripped out all he wants. <laughs> no one's <laughs> even going to drug test him to find out how tripped out he is. Tweet the second. Quote, Success is not the result of spontaneous combustion. You must first set yourself on fire at Reebok. That's a tweet to Reebok? Or it, it a, the quote is attributed so. to Reebok? Unclear, but I believe he is tweeting to Reebok. And it's a man, so, you know, shock. <sighs> I'm going to say, I mean, I feel like we already kind of an inspirational quote, so that already kind of narrows it down for us. I'm going to say Randy Couture. It's a good guess. Really good guess. Uh, who was it that we just saw sponsored by Reebok? Was it uh, Q-Jack? Quentin Jackson? I thought he just had fucked up his Reebok deal. I, I, I watched somebody fight with Reebok on the back of their shorts recently because it had the new logo on there. You know, Reebok just changed its logo. I didn't know that. I'm going to say Quentin Jackson, even though I know that's probably not right. Both fine guesses, both grounded in deduction, and both again wrong. It is King Mo. Oh, that's who it was. God damn it. <laughs> Way to go, Chad. You're racist. <laughs> I'm going to give you like half a point for that one, actually. 
You're like a Japanese fight fan. He's King Mo, Quentin Jackson, all the same person to you. Stop it. Move on. <laughs> you should knock two plastic things together to show your no, approval. Just... Enough. <laughs> Who's the racist? Tweet the third. They can't clap. Their hands are too delicate. Oh. Tweet the third. Jesus Christ. Oh. Somebody tell Marcus Davis the Irish hand grenade. We need to fight in Bellator before he retired. I'll do it in Boston. Fuck the Red Sox. Okay, so Bellator fighter flipping out a little bit. I guess I'm just going to play the odds and say War Machine? Well, he was just recently injured, which means he has a lot of time on his hands. I was going to go New York badass, the poet, Philip Baroni. Also a good guess. Although, wasn't he in 1FC? Oh, he can do whatever he wants. He's a poet, Philip Baroni. That's true. It is. It is the poet, Philip Baroni. His words ring through the ages to strike Marcus Davis, possibly the only way he could. I guess that makes sense, too. The the New York badass would say, fuck the Red Sox. Yes. He hates them. Also in, desperate for a fight. In retrospect, it's also clear. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. I want to snake-proof my room so that I can sleep with them and not have to worry about them escaping. Okay, goddammit, that's War Machine. Wait, Come on. Guess War Machine twice? I just did. Well, that's either War Machine or War Machine girlfriend Christy Mack, so I guess I'll go War Machine. It is most definitely War Machine. He should also Christy Mack-proof his house so she does not escape while he's sleeping. <laughs> oh, God. <clears throat> Wait, how do you snake-proof your room, by the way? I don't know. Because Especially if you keep snakes as pets. I assume you shove a towel under the door. <laughs> Clearly, you're an expert in the field. When you when you tell me you want to snake-proof your room, I do not immediately assume it's to keep snakes in. <laughs> it's just a bad idea just sleeping with six or seven snakes. Even if they don't get mad at you, they will start something with one another. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. <clears throat> Marks. I'm sorry? What? Marks. Is that M-A-R-K-S or M-A-R-X? M-A-R-K-S, and it is in fact hashtag Marks. So somebody is calling everybody Marks? Seems that way, yes. Or it's some clever ploy by Mark Hunt somehow. (laughs) Uh, I'm at a loss here, Chad. Yeah, that, I mean... I guess I'm going to say John Jones. Interesting. Uh, Chael Sonnen. I don't know. Both fine guesses. Both men prone to hostility, but both, again, wrong. It is Nate Diaz. God damn you. Which is obvious. When you eliminate the marks, the only person left, no matter how (laughs) improbable, must be the tweeter. And Nate Diaz, the only person who's not a mark. When was this tweet sent out? Uh, this was tweeted January 24th. Oh, you what? motherfucker. I dug back. I do my research, sir. Uh, I was just about to congratulate you on a really well done uh, installment of Master Tweet Theater, but now I'm going to go ahead and say go to hell, Sir Nigel Longstock. Well, well, well. Well, that's it for us. Uh, what do you got going on this week? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. Is it going to hell? Yes, sir. It is going straight to hell. And I have just also finished filming a new film. Uh, it's wonderful. It's about a human torch, an invisible woman, a very stretchy man, a hideous orange thing, and the British gentleman who does not wish to marry any of them. And what is it called? The Fantastic Four Weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> and what role do you play? The Gentleman of of course. Sir. Of course. Of course. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, there is a power vacuum at the top of the UFC's welterweight division, and damn it, it's time to do something about it. UFC 171 this weekend in Dallas. Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler are going to do it for the vacant UFC welterweight title. 
co-main event, you got Carlos Condit and Tyron Woodley doing it for what seems like it could very well be a number one contender spot. We're moving on. GSP broke up with us. You know, we, we cried about it. We, we ate some ice cream. We watched Steel Magnolias. Now we're picking up the pieces and we're moving on. How do you feel about it? Are you ready to get back out there? I still mourn the loss of George St. Pierre. He was pretty much our, our, the great love of our lives, I guess you would say, if we're going to carry on with the weird breakup analogy. He was our Rachel. That's, I don't know who that Unless is. Unless we're, are we Ross or he's Ross? I have no idea what you're talking we're about. We're probably right Ross. Now. Yeah. Um, but I'm excited about this card. I'm excited about UFC 171. I'm excited that they're, if you wanted to see what the welterweight division is going to look like without George St. Pierre, you got five welterweight fights on this card. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the two at the top, and then you've also got Jake Shields and Hector Lombard squaring off on the main card and, uh, Kel- Kelvin Gastelum against Rick Story as the, uh, preliminary main event. Uh, over on, oh, don't, start, doing, don't do that. Don't start doing that. The prelims for this thing are on Fox Sports 2. Well, you know, Fox Sports 1 is probably busy. You know, they got, uh, like, uh, some maybe dudes driving cars around in circles or something. Isn't well, that the time of year they do that? <laughs> I just got a little bit less excited about this card, but, uh, it's still a good card. Uh, uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm super excited to watch Robbie Lawler, of all people, fight for a UFC title in 2014. And, uh, excited to see, uh, Johnny Hendricks get back out there and see what he could do in the, in the wake of putting together the most competitive fight against George St. Pierre, uh, uh, that we saw pretty much during George St. Pierre's run as champion. Uh, and wouldn't it be some shit if March 2014, your UFC welterweight champion of the world is Robbie motherfucking Lawler. That Come would, on, how sweet would that be? <laughs> that would be some shit. That would be totally awesome to see that. You know, but it's also one of those things, though, I was thinking about it while writing a, a piece for the newspaper tomorrow about, you know, losing GSP for the UFC. You know, for one thing, you know, you lose a champion, and so you've got that void to fill there. You've also got a big financial void to fill when you lose GSP. And at a time when the UFC really can't afford that, they already are kind of running light on superstars and looking around for, for who's going to be the, the next king of pay-per-view for them. And, you know, this Johnny Hendricks versus Robbie Lawler, I think, is a fight that has, like, the hardcore people who know what kind of fight this has the potential to be has us really excited. Because one thing, it's a hard fight to call. You know, a couple of guys who are going to go in there and throw them bungalows. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a really exciting fight. However, so let's say Robbie motherfucking Lawler does become UFC welterweight champion in 2014. Still, like, imagine if I came to you in 2008 and said, six years from now, not only will Robbie Lawler still be fighting, he will be the welterweight champ. You would, you would just slap me in the face. Yeah, and I would deserve if it. If you could invent a time machine... And the one caveat that the only thing you could do with it is make MMA-related bets. It would be pretty <laughs> awesome to go back to uh, 2005 or so and start betting all the people you know that Robbie Lawler was going to be a UFC welterweight champion. Well, nine years. Okay, but then you got to wonder, like, okay, say he is welterweight champion. I think it would be, you know, a kind of a fun world to live in with Robbie Lawler as the welterweight champ. But I don't know. It's He's kind of going to be a tough guy. To plug into that position and, and have him pick up where GSP left off as far as selling pay-per-views for you of the yeah, UFC. I mean, you've seen that guy in an interview lately? Well, to his credit, he's gotten a lot better in the last year or so. There was so. only one way he could go. At the no, that's true. It would have been would have been hard to be to be any worse. But I think like uh the point that you make is well taken. If you go back and like look at a year Look at the estimated buy rates of UFC pay-per-views in a year. And that's when you really start to notice how much George St. Pierre meant to this company. Uh, because if those buy rates are anywhere near the truth, the actual uh, buy rate of the pay-per-view, it becomes clear really fast that if George St. Pierre fought twice in a year, it was sort of like the UFC adding a complete additional pay-per-view to the, to the slate. Like that's how much he outsold, uh, the non, the average non UFC or non GSP, uh, UFC pay-per-view. So, uh, pretty, uh, incredible, uh, b- buying power. I guess a pretty incredible draw that he was, uh, during his career as UFC welterweight champion. And frankly, I think no matter which way this goes, Robbie Lawler or, uh, Johnny Hendricks coming out with the belt, you might still have a perception issue 
where people who've been around the sport for a long time might still think George St. Pierre is, is walking around as the, uh, the true welterweight champion out there. You know, and I think that that's probably going to be the case for a while. And that, and you know, that that's not necessarily a terrible thing because Hey, for, for all we know, uh, you know, he comes back at some point and then, you know, you got a huge fight there. I, I don't know. You know, it also, if Johnny Hendricks wins, I think a lot of people then might, uh, take a step back and, and look at his fight with GSP, uh, differently. I mean, I think a lot of people already think that he deserved to win that one. He comes out here and puts a stamp on Robbie Lawler. And I think a lot of people are saying, see, this guy was basically, he deserved to be welterweight champ anyway. He deserved to, you know, have the, the torch kind of passed to him in that GSP fight. And then he goes out and proves it there. I still don't know if Johnny Hendricks is going to be that guy for you that, that, you know, he's not going to necessarily fill the shoes. Uh, but one good thing you have there is losing GSP. If there is an upside to it for the UFC, now that, that field that used to be kind of closed off where it was everybody gets their turn to fight GSP, he beats them, they go back into the rotation and have to find a way to, to make another case for a title shot. Now the shit is wide open, man. You got Carlos Condit, you got Tyrone Woodley, you got Jake Shields and Hector Lombard down there. Uh, and then maybe who knows, off in the distance, you got guys like Gunnar Nelson. So it does feel like the, the, the field has, has opened up. There's a lot more, uh, opportunity. Uh, for uh, upward mobility if you're a UFC welterweight right now. Yeah, and especially in terms of guys like Gunnar Nelson and Hector Lombard. Lombard, obviously a guy who came down to uh, welterweight from middleweight last year and immediately just wrecked Nate Marquardt uh, of the uh, a welterweight of, of long time high standing. And, uh, you know, then you got Gunnar Nelson, a guy who comes out and, and looks awesome in his fight pass show, uh, fight last week. Uh, suddenly it does make you feel like the future could be brighter for those guys, right? Cause they're not all just vying for the opportunity to get taken down and beaten up for five rounds. Uh, so yeah, with the Hector Lombard, Jake Shields fight, especially this weekend at, at 171 is one that, that could be really interesting if, if, Hector Lombard manages to come out and and put together another super impressive performance. You got to think that uh, that vaults him really high up the list of welterweight contenders. I think uh, we've already got a situation where, uh, uh, you know, the winner of Carlos Condit against Tyron Woodley probably is the number one contender. But these things are always in play and they're always in flux with this company. If if Hector Lombard comes out and puts Jake Shields to sleep, uh, tucks him in. Uh, with within a minute or so, um, you know, don't don't count your chickens, man. That 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 because Hector Lombard shapes up as a pretty interesting and exciting opponent for either Johnny Hendricks or Robbie Lawler, no matter who wins that fight. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know I talked to Carlos Condit late last week, and he seems uh, like he's been around long enough to know how this stuff works. That you know, he said, "Hey, I've been told I get a title shot if I win this fight," but uh, you never know. And, you know, that's probably as good a mindset as you can have going into this fight to know, like, hey, you know, if I totally turn in like a, a shitty decision win that everybody hates and Hector Lombard goes out there and, as you say, tucks Jake Shields in, tells night him, night. tells, <laughs> tells him a bedtime night story, night, uh, then yeah, who knows what could happen there. Uh, but, you know, I just wonder if, this like the promise of hey the welterweight division in the aggregate is now more exciting than it used to be although we've lost the big superstar uh and by the way since we've lost him he's off uh in the wings talking shit <laughs> like i don't know if that's still a net positive for the ufc well i but i think that's where a, where the future could be bright for a guy like hector lombard because if he keeps doing amazing things at welterweight he then becomes a dude that you can uh, 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 you know, assumedly market as a really scary monster, almost. Just, he is scary. Uh, just as a guy who who keeps knocking people out, and and you know, if if there are drawbacks to either Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler in a in a promotional sense, maybe you need foils for them in guys who are like Hector Lombard, who can at least bring like a, a Rocky Four type uh, scary uh, monster quality to the table. That's that's all you ask for out of life, isn't it? 
just to make a, life more like Rocky Four. Just yes. everything got to be like yes. Rocky Four. Uh, absolutely. By the way, I mentioned it on Twitter, but I was watching a little bit of the original Rocky on TV uh, the other day uh, and thinking about, you know, MMA promoters and their love of saying that uh, some long shot dude is a real Rocky story. Uh, Rocky made in 1976. Rocky was promised $150,000 for his fight with Apollo Creed. Uh, you know, that's in 1976 money, first of all. Just something to think about the next time a promoter is trying to tell you that like a guy like Patrick Cummins is a real Rocky story and then he gets paid eight grand after losing his job as a barista to come in here and fight. Eh, not really a Rocky story if you don't give him uh, Rocky money, you know what I'm saying? It's the American dream, man. Just the American dream without the money. <laughs> All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Uh, ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to uh, Cyril Diabate, who, you know, respect is due. 40-year-old man who called it quits this weekend after going 4-4 four and four in the UFC since 2010. Uh, he came into his fight with the bricklayer, Alir Latifi. The bricklayer. Knowing that this was going to be his last dance in the octagon. And I guess, Ben, that there are two different ways that you can go with that. You can either go out there, guns blazing, and leave it all in the cage... Or you can do what Diabate did this weekend, and that's go out via first-round submission without even attempting or landing a single significant strike. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me, cruel world. That's how it's gonna end. You're gonna you're you're gonna get choked out first round after attempting zero significant strikes. Damn, dude, you fucking kidding me? At least James Tony threw one or two out there, right? Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me also uh, going out to fighters on the undercard of UFC Fight Night 37, Igor Araujo, nailed it, and uh, Danny Mitchell. I don't know if you've seen the GIF online oh, I've yet. I've seen the GIF, all right. Jesus Christ. If you go to Middle Easy, they've got it. A uh, couple guys just sitting in 50-50 guard, flailing helplessly at one another like two angry toddlers, and this... This is some, some, this is what we can expect from Fight Pass, maybe. Just a couple of guys sitting there, like, uh, you know, mom's not home and a dispute over a Sega Genesis game just got real. And the next thing you know, a really furious fight in which nobody gets hurt. Fucking kidding me with that. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, on the surface, two fairly unrelated stories this past week from the MMA world, although I feel like in a weird way, uh, they cast each other in sort of sharp relief because we had a uh, tough six champion, Mac Danzig, uh, called it quits this week. He retired from the sport to go uh, focus on uh, other areas of his life, uh, and this weekend... Diego Sanchez, who we mentioned at the start of the show, sort of like the last man standing from the original Ultimate Fighter and uh, won the uh, uh, middleweight contract, I guess it was at that time, uh, for the first Ultimate Ultimate Fighter season. Uh, he's going to he's gonna go out and have his fight at UFC 171 against Miles Jury. Uh, and in real world numbers... Mac Danzig, a couple of years older and had a couple of more fights than Diego Sanchez. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, in, in more, uh, what would you call it? Uh, in fighter years, I guess you might say. The, uh, it's, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Yeah. The, the, a lot of wear and tear 
on Diego Sanchez at this point. Um, and, and a guy, frankly, who I think if you've ever had any dealings with him is a guy who's super easy to like. Uh, he's, he's very easy to work with. Um, he's, he's a good interview. He's almost honest to a fault, I guess you would say. And a guy that I think, uh, most of the people who are around the sport want to see good things happen for, uh, where are we going with this Diego Sanchez story? It seems like, uh, I'm not sure what we can take away from it if he comes out and beats a guy like Miles Jury. Well, if you're waiting for him to say, hey, I think this might be it for me. I think I might be nearing the end of the road. You're going to be waiting a while. He's not He's not there yet, like at least in his mind. He's not ready to start making those kind of those kind of remarks and I don't get the sense that he's the type of type of dude who is going to get beat up once and then decide oh wait maybe I'm old now like, he's just not going to do that like he's he's going to keep going until the wheels fall off in all likelihood and you know I guess you kind of have to be that way to be a guy like Diego Sanchez in the first place and to, to fight like he does is to just believe like hey you're always just one or two wins away from uh turning it all around and making a run at the title. And just like, you know, I talked to him when I was in uh, Albuquerque, uh, and he's at Greg Jackson's training for this fight. And he talked to him about that Gilbert Melendez fight, and he'll say, oh, man, if there was just one more round, I totally would have won that one. And, like, that was the one where he seemed like he took such a beating that a lot of us were starting to say, how much longer are we going to do this, Diego? And his answer is a lot longer, it seems. And it does kind of put things in perspective when you look around at all those tough one guys and kind of in your head that they still seem like they're all, you know, 27 and bright eyed and optimistic about the future. And then you look around, those guys are just dropping. I and mean, a lot of guys from that era, you know, Mac Danzig, uh, you mentioned uh, Jay Haran also just announced his retirement. A lot of the guys that dudes like you and I kind of, uh, came up watching when we first started covering the sport uh and now those guys are, are dropping off in their early to mid 30s which lets you know something about the the fighter lifespan diego sanchez seems like he is absolutely in no hurry to do it i mean you mentioned what does it do for him if he beats miles jury i mean i think it's a it's a pretty solid win miles jury is unbeaten and uh you know has looked pretty good so far so i guess the, the maybe the more difficult question is what does it do if he loses that one well, yeah, it seems like kind of a must win. And to his credit, I just want to add, I, I interviewed Diego Sanchez last year uh, for a feature story, and I asked him how long he wanted to keep fighting. And it seemed like he understood that he was not going to be able to continue to do this for a tremendous amount longer. And he was talking about... Uh, you know, trying to make plans for after his fighting career was over and, and to think about other stuff that he could do. But at the same time, he was, uh, you know, falling into that same fighter mentality, which I think you have to have if you want to be successful, where, where he, you know, he wanted to be the champion still. He didn't feel like his journey would be complete unless he eventually became UFC champion. And for a guy like Diego Sanchez, that's got to be a very, uh, seductive way to think, you know, because he is so popular and he's so, uh, you know, such a favorite of the UFCs even because he, he has such an exciting style that he's the kind of dude that if he hangs around for a while and somebody else gets injured, it's not out of the question that they might stick him into a title fight and give us the old, well, he said yes, he stepped up, uh, routine in, in order to justify it. But, you know, he's gonna I, harness the power of a storm and get right in there. Yeah. I did, I did wanted to mention that he seems to recognize or at least he told me that he did, that he recognized the fact that he needed to, to come up with, with another plan for her, for his life here sooner rather than later. Don't you hear that from a lot of fighters, though, where – and it's always one of these things like, okay, I know eventually I'm going to have to do something else or I'm going to have to you know come up with a, a plan B. It's always, you know, though, I got a few more in me. It's always like next year or two years from now or three fights from now. Nobody's ever, you know, it's really hard for those guys to be like, okay, this is the one, you right. know, now is right. the time. And, you know, one of the things I would say in Diego Sanchez's favor is that he seems to have a pretty good support system around him, uh, not only at, at Greg Jackson's camp, uh, where there seem to be a lot of, uh, smart people with their heads on straight, but, um, you know, he's, he's, he's got a, a wife who I also spoke to for the story, uh, who seems like a, a pretty smart lady and, uh, 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 you know, a, a pragmatist in a lot of ways, uh, who, and you would hope that, that some of those people, uh, when it's time to say goodbye, would, would tell him, Hey, you know, we're done here. Well, that almost makes you wonder in these situations. And I think we've seen it with some fighters before where they get to a point where it 
you start to wonder, is winning this next fight the worst thing that could happen to him? Because, you know, if he loses it, then he might have to... He might have to face some some tough questions and might have to kind of sit down and reevaluate. If he wins it, well, shit, man, he's reborn. Reborn in the game and could go on forever, you know, and you get that feeling. And it's that same quandary where, like, nobody, everybody, when they get to that retirement point, they, they don't want to go out on a loss. But then if you win one, you start to think, like, well, hey, maybe I still got it. Maybe I could make a run at the title. Like, there's just no easy way to, to make that transition. And so a guy like Diego Sanchez, I think if he goes out there and beats Miles Jury, which, I mean, it's a winnable fight for him, uh, I think he could win that one. And I think that he'd be very likely to take it as a sign that, you know, things, you know, the sun is finally shining on Diego Sanchez again. You know, things are all about to turn around. Yeah, and you mentioned Miles Jury, uh, you know, certainly not a gimme. He's a guy who's won... Uh, four in a row in the UFC, but clearly we know what a win over Diego Sanchez would mean for him because, you know, he's defeated Mike Ricci and, and Ramsey, Ramsey Najim and, and Michael Johnson, but a win over Diego Sanchez would certainly, uh, signal the, uh, uh, a large leap forward for him in his career. He'd be 14 and 0, and you would think that he would probably move into the, the area where he would have to start fighting guys in the top 10. Uh, for Diego Sanchez, like you said, if he wins it, maybe it gives him a boost and he starts to feel like he can go on. But at the same time, you know, you're a guy that just, just had a, a fight with Gilbert Melendez and, and a guy who's fought for the title. Um, I'm not sure that if he walks out of the octagon with a win over Miles Jury that anyone else is going to say, well, Diego Sanchez is back. You know That's what I mean? True. And it's such a crowded division to begin with. You know, on, on a personal level, when these guys, you know, the tough one guys or guys like Mac Danzig and guys like Jay Haran, when those guys start retiring, doesn't it make you feel suddenly older than you thought you were? Because like some part of you still thinks like, wait, how could they be? They're like the same age as I am. How could they be retiring? And what are they going to do once they retire? You know, and it just hammers home what a cruel way to to make a living and what a a cruel career uh you know fighting stripped to the waist in a cage is because it's like man you hit early to mid 30s and people are looking at you like oh are you still around yeah you know what makes you feel really old is if you go back and watch it go back and watch uh tough one and you see youthful chris lieben and uh you know, uh, sprightly Forrest Griffin with his, you know, with his hair shaved all weird, uh, dancing around pretending to be a monkey, uh, throwing banana chunks everywhere. And, and then you, that, then you think about, you know, what they look like today and, 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 uh, where they are in, with their careers and in, in retirement and stuff. That is what really hammers it home to me to go back and, and watch them all showing up in that house like a bunch of teens. Uh, and then to think of them kind of having lived their entire fighting careers already. Uh, sobering. Well, I mean, uh, not literally sobering because <laughs> you're still never, quite intoxicated. We would never have that, but makes you think, man. Well, you know, after McDanzig retired and I went on Fight Pass, since I am a subscriber, uh, and watched uh, the episode that I kind of vaguely remembered and I wanted to see if I remembered it correctly when McDanzig was on the show and uh, he felt that he was getting too negative after being around all these uh, ignorant meatheads all the time. And so he ordered a hummingbird feeder. Uh, and was going to sit out there and ponder the hummingbird. Uh, and then, you know, of course, immediately guys started fucking with his hummingbird feeder. And who do you think was the first guy on that show to jump up and demand credit for being the first one to fuck with poor Mac Dancing's hummingbird feeder? None other than John Copenhaver, who known better to the fans of the podcast as War Machine. Yeah. He didn't can- even have like crazy, you know, the, is his girlfriend's name tattooed across his throat back then. Even he looked like a younger, almost, almost naive, almost, uh, you know, like a, like a, just a young boyish war machine, unaware of the, the damage he was going to do to his own life eventually. Foreshadowing. Right yeah. There. We should have known once war machine started fucking with Mac Danzig's hummingbird feeder. Should have known. I mean, either you're the kind of person who fucks with another guy's hummingbird feeder or you're not. Well, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff for episode 94 of the co-main event podcast? Well, 
This week, Chad, I'm just saying that you might have seen it that uh, NFL running back Rashard Mendenhall announced his retirement, I believe, at the age of 26. No, uh, I did not see that. Well, he did. I believe that was yesterday. Uh, and, you know, it said he had a good time playing football and made a bunch of money, but, you know, just didn't really want to keep doing it. And one of the, the reasons he cited was he didn't want to keep putting his body through the the punishment of professional football for other people's entertainment. Uh, and the response, uh, predictably, I think, was from a lot of people, well, hey, good for him. Way to see him walk out of there, still relatively in one piece, and and know when to quit. Which also reminded me of some thoughts I had when I saw, uh, before UFC 170, a story about uh, fighter Cody Gibson uh, that we had on MMA Junkie, where he was saying how he was just about to go and get a full-time job as a teacher, uh, and give up this whole fighting for a living thing. And then the UFC called and said, hey, do you want to fight at UFC 170? Yay, forget I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm going to go and uh, fight in the UFC. Uh, I'm just saying, it probably tells us something about both those sports. Because my first reaction when I read that story about Cody Gibson was, oh man, you almost made it out. You almost made it out. Because it would be a teacher. That sounds like a fine life. And the same kind of thing with Rashad Mendenhall, where when he walks away at 26, people are like, Good! Get away from this sport that I really enjoy. I'm just saying, kind of tells us something about these crazy violent sports that we like. Just saying. Wow. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, we've known for a long time that the best way to class up any event is by having someone talk about it in a British accent. That's true. Uh, NPR has known this for years. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Could be a war somewhere. Have somebody talk about it in a British accent, suddenly a hundred times more palatable. It's a fact. Why didn't the UFC think to have a bunch of British dudes do commentary on their shows long, long before this weekend when we saw the new UFC UK announced team take to the broadcast booth for this Fight Pass event. I mean, seriously, man, you're watching this thing and then you look away and it's like, you could, you look away from the screen, it's like you could be watching cricket. You could be watching a bunch of dudes in white pantaloons roaming around the green, green grass of the English countryside. All your cricket watching is really paying off now. Not until you look back do you realize that you're watching the human cockfighting. I'm telling you, if they would have had English guys in the broadcast booth at UFC 1, we never would have had any problems with the government. They would have just turned it on and be like, oh, it's fine. Look at this. English guys are talking about it. What's John McCain going to say to that? I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 171. Hell, we'll know who the new welterweight champion is by then. As for right now, though, we are done and through. We are out. You know, it seems to me that the exact opposite of the effect you mentioned with British dudes classing up something would be like, what if all the uh, UFC commentators had just like really strong feelings?